My wife reminded me about a story this morning. There was a missionary going overseas, and there's a lot that goes into that, particularly if you're going to be a missionary and you're going to be gone for a while, uh, years. Talks about getting, you know, clearing out your stuff. What are you going to take with you to be a missionary? What are you going to keep with you? What are you going to possibly put in storage? And so this missionary was going through the process of, of thinking through everything that she's got to take, everything that, that needs to be sold in a garage sale, and she's getting ready, and she makes the decision because she's thinking of the scripture when Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And she said, well, I, you know, I don't want to, to have any of that. And so she's packing it all up and, and to get ready for a garage sale, going to sell it all or give it all away. And she had some friends come over to help her. And they said, well, why don't you just get a storage unit and keep some of it just in case so that when you come back, you, you'll have it. I mean, it makes sense. Just keep it, you know, so you'll have a couch when you come back and you never know when you might need that. Or your fridge, you come back, you don't have to go looking for a new fridge, you just pop it in the storage unit. And she said, well, when I go over there and I'm telling people about Jesus, people I'm supposed to love because I'm telling them about Jesus, knowing that where your treasure is, there where your heart will be, she said, I don't want my heart to be in storage back here in America. So she sold everything. Because she trusted that the Lord would provide what she needed when she needed it. We have to have faith enough to take a step. Because God loves you enough and is faithful enough to provide the footing when we take that step. And so we're going to look today at this very situation. In Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Uh, if you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 870. It'll also be on the screens if you want to look up there. And I imagine if you have a smartphone, it's on your phone as well. Uh, uh, but we'll, we'll trust that you're looking at the Bible on your phone and not social media. We'll just trust you in that. Uh, uh, we won't block the Wi-Fi or anything, but there it is. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. In, in this situation, Luke chapter 10, Jesus has been teaching his disciples a few things. He has gathered them together. He has taught them some things. He has given them a demonstration of what ministry looks like. Uh, but his disciples are more than just the 12 guys that he has uh, around his inner circle. He's got a wider circle of disciples. And so he gathers some of those together and he gives them some instruction. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So he gathers 72 and pairs them up with each other, and he's going to send them out to a town, a town that, uh, uh, that he intends to go to, and he's, he's going to send them out there. And there's been lots of discussion about that 72 about what specifically that means. Are there any significance behind the 72? I mean, Luke takes the time to write down specifically 72. And generally, the consensus is, uh, back in the Old Testament, actually in the book of Genesis, uh, there is a list of the world's nations at the time. 
Can you guess how many there were? 72. 72. The idea being this is a demonstration of the gospel message going to the world, to anybody and everybody that he's bringing it to. And he sends them out in pairs to every town and place that he is going to go. He is going to physically go or he is going to go by way of the gospel message itself. He sends them ahead of him. He sends them out there to prepare the way for him. What's interesting about that phrase, he sent them ahead of him. The literal phrase uh, uh, before his face is from the original language. That's the original phrase that was used to describe what John the Baptist was doing, preparing the way for the Lord. So they're doing the exact same thing John the Baptist was, preparing the way for Jesus, the message of Jesus to come to these towns. Uh, Look at verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray earnestly that the Lord would send out laborers into his harvest. Now, get ready for the harvest is what he's saying. But Jesus said in John chapter 4 that the harvest isn't for some future far off time. The harvest is now. The harvest is right now. That's why he's sending them out in this exact moment. He's saying, don't be thinking the harvest is way off into the future when you're going to bring people to Jesus. The harvest is right now because there's people everywhere that need Jesus. And so he says, get ready, go out and do it. Look at verse 3. So he's still telling these 72. He says, go your way, behold. I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You ever feel like you're lambs in the midst of wolves? That wolves are just snipping at your heels constantly or taking a chunk out of your arm and you just can't get away from them? Well, Jesus is sending these guys out to bring the gospel. And, and his message is, you are lambs in the midst of wolves. This, and some of them that he's sending out were actual shepherds. They had seen this or there were shepherds in their region and they had seen wolves come and attack a a flock of sheep, and it's not pretty. It's not fun to watch. And so he's saying, you guys are like that, going out there, and the wolves are coming for you. So get ready. He said, you're going to go prepare. You're going to go get people ready for me, get people ready for the gospel. Well, you need to get ready because it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy at all. From this point forward, and it's not just these 72 that he's talking to when he says these verses. We know after Jesus died and rose from the dead uh, and, and ascended to heaven, the Apostle Paul experienced this very thing. Going to city, to city, to city, sharing the gospel, having people come and hunt him down, arrest him, beat him repeatedly. At one point, they get him to this town, they take him outside the town, and they stone him to death. And he's under a pile of rocks. And those people go back into town. God raises him up. Paul stands up, brushes the rocks off, and goes right back into the same town those people went to. He was a a lamb in the midst of wolves, and he went that way because Jesus was that very thing. He was a sacrificial lamb in the midst of wolves to bring the gospel to us. So Jesus is preparing these 72. Get ready. Go out there and do this. And here it comes, verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, 
and greet no one on the road. So he says, don't take anything with you. Don't take any money. Don't take a backpack with a backup set of clothes or anything in it, any provisions you might need, some beef jerky. Don't take any extra sandals with you. And then he says, greet no one on the road. Have you ever been on a long journey and when you got there, you realized you forgot something? It was, uh, I believe, it was Thanksgiving. We went to go see family Thanksgiving and we got there to my grandparents' house and I very quickly realized I pictured in my head where my toiletry bag was in my, live, in my bedroom here in DeQueen. And so we had to make a Walmart run for me, not because the kids forgot something, but because I forgot something. And I was the one who loaded the car. And so it's not fun when you realize you forgot something. Well, in this scenario, Jesus is telling them, it's not just don't you know, go through the list and, and don't forget something. He's saying, don't take any provisions with you at all. And then he says this unique phrase, greet no one on the road. Any introverts in the room? Some of you raised your hand. Some of you are so introverted, you won't even raise your hand. You see this and you're like, okay, I am going to print that on a pillow. That is going to be my life verse, right? Greet no one. Jesus said it. (laughs) But this idea... Uh, this, this also happened in the Old Testament. Elisha uh, told his servant to do this very thing. You need to run here and greet no one on the road. It, it, it's not decent saying, be rude. What he's saying is, your mission is so urgent. There's something more important you need to do. Because in this day and time, first century Middle East greetings took a long time. You ever had a friend or somebody you know or somebody you saw across the way at Walmart, and you know if you stop to talk to them, it's going to be 45 minutes? Don't look around the room. And you think, okay, I know I got to get to this place. I got to get to this place. I got to go do this. I know if I stop and talk, this, this thing is shutting down now. We're going to close Walmart and Walmart doesn't close. Uh, but Jesus is saying, greet no one on the road. He's saying, your, your mission is so urgent, you don't have time to stop and do this. Now, he, he's about to say, there's another way I want you to greet people in the next verse, but he's saying, in the traditional sense, in the traditional cultural sense, don't stop and greet someone in that way. He's saying, I've got a better way. Verse five, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. So he says, don't greet anyone in the traditional way. Instead, when you show up and you greet somebody, say, peace be to this house. Now we're going to explore this this concept in in the rest of what Jesus says. But I'll tell you what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying this isn't like a name it, claim it kind of a deal where, where you yourself can issue peace by just saying, I give you peace. Go in peace and be happy. There's a deeper meaning to what he's saying. There is a source for this peace. Verse six. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. This is an interesting concept, this son of peace. This is, this is where we realize what Jesus is saying. Because this is a phrase that Luke, who wrote this book, Luke uses this phrase in a, on a consistent basis. If you want to look it up later, Luke 1, 79, Luke 2, 14, Luke 7, 50, Luke 8, 49, 
and Acts 10.36. Those are five different passages of Scripture besides this one. So six total passages of Scripture where he uses this. But he uses it to talk about peace being the gospel. Peace being the gospel. The gospel of peace. Paul uses that language in Ephesians chapter 6. That your feet will be shod with the gospel of peace. He's saying, you bring the gospel. That's the greeting I want you to give. Not the traditional cultural greeting. The greeting I want you to give is longer lasting. The greeting I want you to give will have a deeper impact. It is the gospel. So when you show up and you give the gospel to somebody, which he's phrasing it here, this is your expectation. And if they are a son of peace and they're willing to accept that gospel, that peace, then great, they have it now. But if they don't accept the peace, if they don't accept the gospel, then they have decided that on themselves and it's not up to you to force them. Because I don't know if you've learned this yet or not in life. You can't make people do what you want them to do. But wouldn't it be nice if they did? He says, if not, if they don't accept the gospel, if they don't accept the peace of the gospel, then it will return to you. And they, the, 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 the offer, the free gift offer of eternity, they have rejected. And they will not have peace. They will not find peace. Verse 7. Jesus said, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So this is where Jesus makes up earlier when he said, don't bring any money, don't bring any extra provisions, don't bring any backup food, don't bring a snack bag, don't bring any extra sandals. You show up, somebody's, he says, he's telling them, when you show up to this place, whatever town you're going to to bring the gospel, to bring the good news of preparing the way for Jesus, when you show up, somebody will bring you into their house. Saying, I'm telling you in advance, it's going to happen, so just get ready. I'm going to provide a way. And they're gonna provide food for you. He says, because a laborer deserves his wages. If you're working for the Lord in whatever capacity, in whatever way, you deserve to be taken care of. And he says, don't jump from house to house just because you don't like what that house gives. They show up with a certain kind of food or a certain kind of provision that you don't like. Don't jump to another one. He's saying, because it's not them providing it, it's me providing it. So he says, go to the house and stay there because I'm providing something for you. Your expectation might be different. But what I got for you is better. Look at verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now, this is a huge deal. Because these guys, these 72, these are Jews. It says, when you show up to a town and somebody brings you in, even if they're not Jews and they put bacon in front of you, he's saying the gospel is more important than cultural dietary restrictions. The gospel is more important than decorum. The gospel is more important than anything that's superficial, than any made-up, man-made rules. He's saying the gospel is more important than any of that. He says, so eat it. They put it before you, you eat it. Who had parents who had that rule? You put it before you, you're going to eat it. Right? He says, they put it before you, you eat it, and you give them the gospel in return. Verse 9, he says, heal the sick in it, that town, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. 
He says, heal them, heal them, deliver them, save them. He gives them authority. He gives them power. He gives them strength. He gives them the message of the gospel to bring. And these 72 go out and they do this. They go town to town. They see God's provision everywhere. The realization from the, from, from the Lord's prayer, uh, give me this day my daily bread. They're seeing it that day because they show up, don't know where they're going to get bread for lunch, and God provides it. So they're going town to town, seeing that provision. And then they come back. They come back to Jesus. Flip over, uh, or I guess flip down to verse 72, or excuse me, 17 of Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They come back and they're kind of given the praise report of their experience. They're saying, we went all over the place and God provided all over the place and we, did, we healed people, we did miracles. And he's saying, even demons did what we want, Jesus. But you hear that? Even the demons are subject, what do they say? To us. In your name. They do say in your name. But the subject is wrong there. They're not subject to them. They're subject to Jesus. And Jesus is using them to do this thing. They're they're rejoicing because they feel like their work is successful. But it's not really their work in the first place. It's Jesus' work. It's his work that they were doing. If we allow the ups and downs of the moment to steer our our emotional state that as soon as it goes down, our emotional state is going to crater. See, they're they're excited because they feel like their work was successful, but it wasn't their work to begin with. It was his work, and Jesus is going to correct them. Verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So he's saying, you think demons are subject to you? says, I was there when Satan got kicked out of heaven to begin with. Verse 19, behold, I have given you authority. So subject, what's the subject of that sentence? I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that our rejoicing should be completely dependent upon what he has done for us in bringing us salvation. That's where our joy should lie. So that when things go bad, and they will, you live in a broken planet, things are going to go bad. When things go bad, that doesn't mean your joy is stolen. He said, because your joy, follower of Jesus, should rest in the fact that you're saved should rest in the fact of something that cannot be taken from you. Your salvation can never be taken from you. And so because it cannot be taken from you, because we're not more powerful than Jesus, and he gave us our salvation, that because it cannot be taken from us, our our, our joy is secure because it's in our salvation and not whether or not something we did was successful. And so he's saying be joyful over that and you will have joy that never fails. And then he, there's an interesting question in a couple of chapters. So this is a very important, a turning point in Jesus' ministry with these guys, uh, these people. 
uh, because it happened. He sent them out. They returned. There's a story about it. And then he asked them a question about it later on. In Luke chapter 22, he asked them this question, verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Nothing. Have you ever walked into a situation where you feel like you, you walked in unprepared or you walked in thinking you didn't have enough money or you walked in thinking you didn't have enough of whatever you needed to get through the situation? These guys walked in knowing they did not have enough, but they knew ahead of time that Jesus was going to provide. They walked in knowing that Jesus was going to give them everything that they needed. Everything. And so what I find fascinating here is it doesn't give us the perspective of the disciples. If you were one of those 72 going to those towns, do you think you would be a little anxious when you woke up on day one? All right, now where am I going to get lunch today? Well, I would. (laughs) Because I don't know about you, but I like food. Like, when I got to church this morning, I was already thinking about lunch. Uh, you know, I know I've got that meeting at noon, but I'm thinking, okay, let's get to done with the meeting because i got to go eat. Uh, who, you, you, you ever build your day around your food? I, I do. I look forward to different parts of my day and making sure that there's food. I'm excited about food. If you were one of these guys, would you wake up thinking that? Or would you wake up thinking, okay, I got these sandals and I was about to go buy some new sandals. I I need new sandals. The straps are falling off. But Jesus said, go to this town and don't take any extra sandals with you and don't bring money to buy new sandals. Well, what am I going to do about my sandals, Jesus? Would you be worried about that? Would you be worried about how you're going to get a change of clothes? Like you're thinking, tomorrow was washing day and I got to get up and I can't bring any extra clothes with me. This is just gross. I'm not bringing my toiletry bag. How are we going to get this to work? How are we going to get this to function? Are you, would you be thinking about all of the logistics that you've got to get to make this thing happen? But Jesus said, don't take any of it because I'm going to provide it. I am going to provide it. What he, he's demonstrating something for us here, something that I'm not always that great at, that sometimes I try to do something that I know Jesus said he would take care of. Like in that case with those guys. He said, I will provide that need, so don't worry about that need. I've got that one covered. You just go and you tell them about me. Are you ever like that? He said, I will provide all your needs. Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. You ever try to add the things to you before the seeking? Okay, Jesus, I will seek you out and I will tell people about you, but Jesus, I got to have my to-do list and I got to make sure I've got everything covered and I've got all the supplies that I need. I got to think about it ahead of time and I got to have a planning meeting to get it all laid out and I got to diagram the thing and I got to get ready. I got to go through the checklist or it's just not going to happen. And Jesus is coming and he's saying, no, 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 you're missing the point. Seek first and then the stuff will be added. He said, I've got the provision. I've got it. So trust me and I will take care of it. Just trust me. I've got something for you to do. Trust me to provide what you need. The only way to do what God wants you to do 
is to trust him to give, what, give you what you need to do it. The only way to do what God wants you to do is to trust him to give you what you need to do it. You can't accomplish what God has set before you to accomplish if you're not trusting him with the supply. If you're not trusting him to give you what you need, we're never going to do the job he has for us to do. And that's why you're here. He put you on this planet because he's got a job for you. And you're not gone yet because he's still got something for you to do. And we can't do it the way he wants it done if we don't trust him. Trust him to take care of us. Trust him to provide for us. And you know why? You know why he provides for us? You know why he gives to us? Because he loves us. Because he loves us and his love knows no bounds. You know, the most famous scripture in all the world, even people who don't believe in Jesus know this verse, or at least chunks of it, is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. What is it? God loved the world. Not just Christians, not just good people, not just happy people. He loves the world. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved, he loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die and raise. He loved the world so much that he sent his son as a sacrifice for us because of his love, his limitless love, knowing full well that a bunch of the world was going to not believe, was going to reject Jesus. He sent Jesus anyway so that whoever believes, now that is hard for some people to accept, whoever believes, Whoever, that means whether or not, you know, you <laughs> said nice things this morning in your house while getting ready to go to church. Whoever believes, whether or not, you know, you were in jail yesterday, whether or not you have a past that you don't like to talk about, whether or not your past is something everybody else talks about, whether or not, I was talking to Jared about it this morning. Whether or not you come to church wearing clothes that some people think you ought to be wearing in church, your clothes in church don't matter. God said in the Old Testament, Old Testament, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. What you wear in church doesn't matter. Your preacher's wearing jeans, man. Whoever believes, that's anybody, murderer. Whoever believes, whoever believes, no, no matter how much money they got in the bank, no matter if, what kind of car they have in the parking lot or if they walked, whoever believes. Jesus didn't have a car. Whoever believes, it doesn't matter. There's no pre-qualifications. There's no application process. There's no cover charge. Whoever Anybody and everybody, whoever believes in him. Then he says, should not perish. That doesn't just mean die. That means die and go to hell. That means die and be punished. That means die and spend forever experiencing the wrath of God. He said, whoever, anybody and everybody who believes will not perish, will not ever experience that pain, but rather have eternal life, life that lasts for all time, life that, that, that never ends. 
which is hard for us to wrap our head around. I don't know if you've ever tried to process eternal life, what eternity is, but it'll break your brain. Because everything that we know has a time frame, a beginning and an end. And he's saying this life, if you believe, never stops. Never stops. It just goes and goes and goes. If you believe, you will have eternal life. So his love, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave. His love brings about his giving. His love brings about his provision. His love brings about his generosity. This generosity of God in sending his son. And it's not just a New Testament idea. You ever heard an argument of somebody saying, well, New Testament God isn't like Old Testament God. They're, they're different. I mean, there's not a, not a whole lot of wrath in the New Testament. But people who say that hadn't you know, read the whole New Testament. You get the revelation. You get in, into some of Paul's writings. Uh, God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always the same. And his love has always been the same from the very beginning, from creation, from grace and mercy, all the way back. When God made the law, there's this unique thing. I was reading about it recently in a devotion book. And if you've ever read, we were talking about this week, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I know that's some of y'all's favorites, right? Y'all got Leviticus memorized. Anybody? I'm going to give you like a gold star or something. Somebody raise their hand on that one. Uh, right in the middle of all that stuff that some of us like to skip over when we're reading through the Bible, there's this concept called the cities of refuge, cities of refuge. And way it worked is these are places that if somebody was in big, bad trouble, they could run to one of these cities and be safe, run to one of these cities and be, be protected. But you know how God's love extends to this? You know, transportation wasn't great back then, Old Testament days. I don't know if you knew that or not. It took them a while to get anywhere. Well, God designed these cities of refuge that no matter where you were in Israel, you could get to a city of refuge in less than half a day. He put that many cities of refuge out there so that no matter where you went, you were always close enough to get to one when you got in big, bad trouble. Because God loved his people so much, he wanted them to find protection. He wanted them to find deliverance. He wanted them to find safety and security. So he provided these places all over the map so they could get there and be taken care of. And then he even put in the provision, you only have to stay in the city of refuge so long, and at the end of that time period, you're free to go, and nobody can touch you. Nobody can touch you at the end of that time period. Because he loved his people. He knew people were going to mess up. He knew people were going to need help. He knew people were going to need safety and security. And so he set all this up because he loved them so much. This is right at the beginning, guys. I mean, the first you know, three or four books in the Old Testament is right there. It's not just a New Testament concept. He loves people. And so he gives constantly. And he sets up these cities of refuge. And so here's the deal. I don't know your current situation. I don't know your current mindset sitting in those green pews. I don't know what you're going through. But I can tell you, I know some of you are going through some bad, bad stuff. Some of you have been making plans this week to do something to relieve the pain. You've been doing something to keep from hurting. And you've been keeping it hidden. Maybe it's in your purse. Maybe it's uh, in your car. Maybe it's in your truck. 
Maybe you're hiding it under your mattress, but you've got something like a relief valve. Or maybe it's the phone in your pocket. Maybe it's a blade. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe some of you in this room right now, sitting here in the green pews, this quiet room, have been planning suicide. And you got a plan worked out. But God put you here today for a reason. Because this is a city of refuge. And he brought you here to find safety and security. He brought you here to, to find his love. He loves you so much that he sent his son. He loves you so much that he put First Baptist the Queen on a hill in southwest Arkansas for you to find rescue today. Some of you right now are sitting there, and I've been saying what you're going through, and you're sweating. I'm sweating. I'm under the lights. You're sweating in the green pew because you're like, how's he know? How's, how's he know? You know, I was planning on ending this sermon in a completely different way, completely different way. But yesterday, God began to say some stuff to me, and this morning, he said, yeah, you're, you're, you're chucking that whole section and doing something different. He said, because I've got somebody who's coming in that room who needs to hear something else. So wherever you find yourself, wherever you're, you're, you're trying to find that relief from, from the pain and the difficulty and the struggle and the plan you've set up to hide the stuff and you're hiding some of that stuff from the people you're sitting on the pew with and you don't know how people are going to react. Well, the thing about a city of refuge is it means you're safe. You know, that's what church is supposed to be. This isn't a country club. This isn't a cruise ship. It's an ER. ERs are messy. There's blood and guts and stuff everywhere. Vomit. You come here, this is a city of refuge. This is an ER. So whatever you got sitting there, you're struggling. Some of you are squirming. I see it. You don't know how to get through it. Honestly, some of you don't even know how you got here to this point. So far along in the journey, it's some pain deep in the past that you've been hurt that, that, that led you to this point and, and you've made decision after decision after decision and you, you find yourself in this place and you think, I have no idea how I got here. I can think back and I know this person did that and my parents did this and, and my uncle did that and, and I get to this point and you don't know. But Jesus reaches out his hand and he says, I love you. I love you. There was that one man that uh, in Jesus' time, it says in there, he had been by this pool. He was, he was paralyzed. He'd been by this pool because he superstitiously believed if he got in this pool faster than anybody else, this pool had magic healing powers and he'd be healed. And Jesus shows up one day and goes up and he talks to this guy. What's fascinating about this story is Jesus walks past everybody else who's there. And he walks up to this man who's been there for years and years and years and years. And you know what the man says to Jesus? He says, I have no one. He says, I have no one to put me in. He says, I have no one to help me. I have no one left who will be with me. I have no one left to comfort me and provide strength. I have no one. And Jesus, through his action, says, wrong, my friend. 
you have me. Jesus reaches down his hand there in the sick and the nastiness of this place and he takes the man and he stands him up and heals him on the spot. Because we may feel like we have no one. Some of us literally may have no one. But I tell you right now, that's a lie from the enemy. At the base root of it, you have Jesus. And that's all we need. That's all we need. But that's also why God put this city of refuge right here for you. That's why we have those small groups. So people can turn to each other and help each other and build each other up. So whatever brought you here to this city of refuge and you ran in those doors this morning, metaphorically, spiritually, maybe physically, I don't know, I didn't see you come in. You, you came in because you need Jesus. And he loves you. Will you give up that thing? Will you take that plan you've had in the back of your mind about how to get this relief, how to pursue this, this, this addiction, how to pursue the thing that you should not be pursuing? Your suicide plan, are you ready to tear that deal up and say, I believe in Jesus. He loves me. So when that enemy comes and he whispers those words in the back of your mind, no, he does not. Nobody loves you. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Nobody knows the sorrow. You can say, no, but I know he loves me. I know he does. And you can name it, claim it, John 3, 16, all day long. He loves me so much that he gave. He gave his son for your salvation, and in that salvation is our joy. In that salvation is our strength. In that salvation is our peace. Will you come to Jesus today and bring whatever mess you have? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, very end, last three verses of that chapter, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You weary? You carrying something heavy today? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says this. He says, take my burden upon you. See, the idea is you bring your load, you bring your difficulty, you bring your pain, you bring your burden to Jesus, and you trade. Here, take mine. And Jesus says, okay, you take mine because my burden is easy and light, and you will find rest for your souls. Will you come to Jesus Come to Jesus for the first time. Believe that he's God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Or come to Jesus carrying that burden you've got, that pain you've got, that difficulty you've got. Come to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I need you today. I've said that many days. Jesus, I need you. Like, I don't have all the words and the articulation to say all the stuff, but Jesus, I just, you know, you know how to fix it. God, Jesus, I just need you right now. You, you do what you do. I need you. Do you need Jesus today? Come to Jesus. That's the invitation. Not just from Matthew 11. That's the invitation, invitation from Revelation 22. That's how the whole book of Scripture ends, with, with, with an invitation. Jesus says, Come. Will you come to Jesus today in whatever capacity that is? Come to Jesus. Find the rest for your soul. Find the healing. Find the peace. Find the love. 
Because Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Y'all pray with me. God, we see your love all over Scripture. With Adam and Eve walking with them in the garden, your love, even grace and mercy, and, and <laughs> even when they were punished, there was still the hope of salvation to come. That you didn't leave them. You didn't leave them there in their decisions. You walked with them through it. And God, we find ourselves in difficult places. All of us in different difficult places, but difficult nonetheless. God, help us to come to you. Come to you and bring the burden, bring the pain and pass it off and say, Jesus, please trade with me. Carry it for me because I can't carry it anymore. God, I pray that you would reach out right now. People around the room, people watching online, whatever burden they've got, whatever pain they've got, generational even, whatever decisions they've made, plans they've made to find relief and release, you would step in for them right now. Step in the gap, intervene. Say, you are loved. Embrace them here and now. God, I thank you that you have embraced us all. Whoever, whoever, you love the world and whoever believes, anybody, anybody can come. Open invitation, coming to you. God, we thank you for that, that love, that generosity. Help us to trust that you will provide as you always have for all of our needs. In your name I pray. Amen.